Today I'll be reading reading Romans 3, verse 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles only, or also since God is the one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thank you, Katie, for reading today's passage. When I was growing up, children picked raspberries in the summertime. By the time I was 13, I had seen enough berries, so I decided to look for other work. I went to talk to Mrs. Pauls. She had three large chicken barns with long conveyor belts. So I asked Mrs. Pauls for a job collecting eggs. Now instead of seeing lots of berries, I was seeing lots of eggs. Agnes Pauls was married, and uh, she had four sons older than me. But there was no doubt that she ran the whole farm. Why was she in charge? A few weeks ago, I read a book narrating her refugee journey, a book she only wanted published after her death. After reading the book, I understood why she ran the farm. Agnes was born into a family of wealthy landowners in South Russia. She was born into privilege. Her mother wanted her to play the great oak piano, but she much preferred being her father's right hand on their large farm. After all, they had many workers to supervise in the fertile, sprawling wheat fields. During the time of Joseph Stalin, however, all farmland was collectivized. Overnight, she went from being a privileged citizen to a social outcast, a political prisoner. Her entire family was banished from the region and trained to Siberia to work in a prison camp. She had gone from living in luxury to slave labor. As the people around her began to die of starvation, Agnes decided to escape. She ran for her life, but one major obstacle stood in her way. Because she was a state criminal and did not have a citizen's pass, no one would employ her. She could not even clean the public toilets, the lowest form of work in the country. Those who helped her put their own lives in danger. She was homeless. Her condition was desperate. She was doomed to anguish and misery. Her story is an analogy of the human condition. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, were born into privilege. They enjoyed all of the wonders of being people created in the image of God. They walked with God in his garden. 
They enjoyed the ample provision of God's good creation. They had need of nothing. But their decision to separate themselves from God and go their own way led to the human depravity described in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Overnight, they went from surveying the garden with their heavenly father to being banished from the garden forever, toiling to survive. God had been traded for idols, the truth of God for lies, worship for pride-filled misery. Would we humans, their descendants, remain forever helpless victims of sin, unable to uh, do anything to escape our enslavement to sin? How would we ever return to right standing with God How could we ever return to the garden of God? Romans 1, verse 18 to 320 makes it very clear that none are righteous before God. Not one Jew, not one Gentile, not one immoral person, not even the moralizers, not one irreligious person, not even the religious. All without exception are guilty and speechless before God. No one comes anywhere close to God's righteousness in their character, their thoughts, attitudes, and actions not even the most upright of human beings. There's not one ray of hope, not one flicker of light, no hope of rescue. All of humanity stands condemned justly forever before God. And then we read verse 21. But now, but now is an exclamation of hope. God has intervened, but now signals something completely new. It proclaims the great turning point in world history. For this reason, Romans 3, 21 to 26 is one of the most beloved and important passages in all of Scripture. It's truly groundbreaking, a fresh revelation. So what is the good news? Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Did you notice how the righteousness theme dominates these verses, verses 21 to 31? In fact, four English words, righteousness, justified, justifier, and just, all come from the same root in the original language. They're all intimately connected. The gospel reveals something to us that cannot be found anywhere else. What is it? Romans 1, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. God put his righteousness on public display in Jesus. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, outside the city gates of Jerusalem, God's saving righteousness was made known apart from the law, Paul writes. It was definitely not made known due to human righteousness, human obedience to the law, but Paul can also say that God's work in Jesus stood in continuity with everything revealed through the law and the prophets. How so? The Hebrew scriptures testified to, looked forward to, and predicted this way of salvation. In fact, the gospel could only be the gospel of God if it was rooted in the soil of the revelation provided by God in the Old Testament. Paul repeatedly stresses that God's work in Jesus for all people is exactly what God had promised from the very beginning, the perfect fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. The gospel was God's single, continuous plan from the beginning, not an unexpected adjustment to correct what had gone wrong. The righteousness of God was manifested through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Why does God's righteousness need to be available to all people? Verses 22 and 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
These words summarize the previous chapters. All are under the power of sin. All are equally impoverished. We have all been banished from the garden. None of us carry citizenship papers. All fall short of God's glory. And what is the glory of God? God's glory is the majesty of his holy character, his awesome presence. Adam and Eve had direct communion with God in the garden, but they lost the glory of God when they exchanged God's glory for their own glory. Their being cut off from direct fellowship with God was the great loss caused by their sin. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, we all fall short of God's righteousness and live separated from his presence. And all means all. That's why there is a universal need for salvation. We are all under sin. And what is sin? Well, we live independently of God, in prideful rebellion against God. We constantly miss the mark of God's standard of righteousness. We are by nature self-centered and self-seeking. We all fall short of God's glorious divine presence and the holiness it demands. But now, the righteousness of God has been unveiled, put on the public stage through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does this revelation mean for us? Well, first of all, every man and woman who put their trust in Jesus receive righteousness from God. That is the gift of acceptance and right standing before God. Second, the righteousness of God also refers to the righteousness done by God. That is God's saving power at work. This is life-changing. God provided salvation for sinners like you and me. He did what we could never do. With the cross of Jesus comes justification, redemption, and propitiation. Pro what? What's that? Let's begin with the word justification. The word justify comes from the realm of the law court. It is what a judge does when he declares innocent a defendant in a trial. It's much more than acquittal. The word means to declare righteous. A new status is granted before God. We are granted a citizenship pass, as it were. Sometimes we equate forgiveness and justification. Here's the difference. The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you can go. You will not receive the penalty your sin deserves. The voice that spells justification will say, you may come. You are welcome to enjoy all my love and presence. Isn't it not true that too often we're content to receive forgiveness for sins and we don't enter into the reality of justification? Justification, it ushers us into God's presence, a new and living relationship with the Father. Justification does not mean made righteous. As followers of Jesus, we still require transformation into the likeness of Jesus, but God now sees us in terms of our relation with Jesus. God declares us righteous at the beginning of the race, not at the end of a long process of of running a marathon towards sanctification. God finds reason for our justification, not in our goodness, but in his son, Jesus. Here's another analogy from the life of Agnes. She was running for her life on a train, trying to get back to the place of her birth, but still without a citizenship pass. On one occasion, a kind family agreed to provide cover for her 
Each time the authorities opened the door of the boxcar, she remained hidden in the back of the car, pretending to sleep. And the grandmother of the family told the government authorities that all those in the boxcar belonged to her family. In a sense, Agnes was given right standing by the gracious action of the grandmother. In Jesus, God affords humanity the great return to his presence. In verse 24, Paul writes that we are all justified by his grace as a gift. The initiative from beginning to end belongs to God the Father. In the gospel, God says, I give you right standing before me as a gift, and this is for all. If we are in Jesus, we can enter the presence of God with confidence as God's children because we have been given right standing. We can call him Abba Father. This is grace. The best synonym for grace is loving kindness. John Stott writes, grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. The arithmetic of grace is based on a bottom line that we all have failed, but that God has mercy on all of us. And not only are our debts canceled, but we have right standing with God. We can now live in his presence. This justification, sourced in God's grace and his grace alone, grounded in Christ and his cross alone, activated through faith and faith alone is at the heart of the gospel and completely unique to Christianity. No other system, ideology, or religion proclaims free forgiveness, right standing with God, and a new life to people who have done absolutely nothing to deserve it, but instead have done a lot to deserve judgment. Christianity in its essence is not a religion at all. It is a gospel. It is amazingly good news. We are all given right standing before God through faith in Jesus. And all means all. When you're looking for a job in Canada, your citizenship matters. And you need a resume replete with education, experience, and skills needed for the job. When you apply for a job, you hope you have everything required for the job and more. In a similar way, every religion asks you for your resume, your performance record, but not Christianity. God knows you don't have the resume. That's why we read in verse 26 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, God's love and justice meet. First, he maintains the integrity of his character. The penalty demanded for sin by the law is not removed, but fully paid for by Jesus. God remains just. Only the death of Jesus makes possible the forgiveness of sinners like you and me without compromising the very character of God. Second, God is the justifier. He was faithful to provide the means to put people in right standing with himself. His saving righteousness and justice were revealed in Christ's death on our behalf, meeting the demands of his holy character. Justification makes the journey with God possible. It's the gateway into relationship with God. This is why for the Christ follower, the cross stands at the center of history. The cross of Jesus is the very ground of our justification. It is also the ground of our redemption. In the Roman world, the word redemption was used to refer to the payment of a price for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner of war. The word also reaches back to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. 
By the blood of the Passover lamb, God liberated the enslaved people of Israel from Egypt. They were set free. Returning to the story of Agnes, in her flight from the prison camps of Siberia, she eventually made her way to the large city closest to the place of her birth, still without a citizenship pass needed to find work. A Jewish newsstand owner by the name of Mr. Katz took note of her need and gave her a job washing floors. On three occasions, she found money on the floor or in between the slats. Each time, she returned the money to the cash register. After a few months, the secret police became aware of her presence, and she was imprisoned with three other girls from her village. She was put into a room with hardened criminals, many of them gang members who had roamed the country, pillaging, raping, and murdering. One night, the three other girls were summoned and put before the firing squad. Agnes was sure her fate would be much worse. Day after day, she waited. Finally, her name was called. She was put before a stern judge. He glared at her without feeling and suddenly pronounced, you're free to go. To her utter amazement, she was given a three-month pass. She was free to go and free to find work. Agnes returned to the newsstand owned by the Jewish man, Mr. Katz. After a few days of work, Mr. Katz's wife said to Agnes, Do you know why you were set free? Agnes had no idea. Mr. Katz, she continued, paid the price for you to be set free. Because of your honesty, when you found the money on the floor and returned it to the cash register, you won his heart. Mr. Katz had purchased her freedom, but he did not pay for it with his own life. Our redemption was purchased by another Jewish man who paid the price of our ransom, not with money, but with his own blood shed on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And he did not sacrifice his life because we had proven ourselves worthy. This Jewish man, the very son of God, paid the highest price to secure our release from the ultimate slavery. In fact, we who trust in him no longer live under the power of sin. We have been set free forever. We are all set free from enslavement to sin through faith in Jesus. And all means all. We've spoken of justification and redemption through the cross of Jesus. In verse 25, Paul writes that God put Jesus forward. In other words, he presented Jesus or displayed Jesus publicly on the cross as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is very uncommon. What does it mean? It refers to the wiping away of sin, but it means much more than that. It means to appease someone's wrath, as in the sentence, I propitiated my wife's wrath by taking her out for dinner. Does God need to have his wrath appeased? When we think of wrath, we often view it as unbridled anger, illogical road rage, or a parent losing it with their child. Sometimes we think of the indiscriminate, inhumane treatment inflicted on prisoners in times of revolution or war. Or we remember the self-seeking whims and senseless intrigues of pagan gods who must be bribed with sweets and vegetables, animals, and sometimes even human sacrifice. God's wrath, as revealed in Scripture, is completely different. It's not uncontrolled emotion, but the settled and necessary response of a holy God to sin. 
And we must remember that God appeased his wrath with his own sacrifice. He made the provision. The true God sent his own son, Jesus, to die in our place. In other words, the judge took the judgment. So the word propitiation does mean to appease God's wrath, but it also refers to something else. In 21 of its 27 occurrences in the Greek Old Testament, the word propitiation is used for the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the the golden lid of the ark in the most holy place in the temple, the innermost sanctuary of the temple, the most hidden place of all. The ark symbolized to the Jewish people the very presence of God in the most holy place. That inner sanctuary symbolized the Garden of Eden. The golden lid of the ark was the very place where the high priest sprinkled blood for the forgiveness of the people's sins on the Day of Atonement. In fact, the mercy seat was also called the atonement cover. The mercy seat foreshadowed the cross. With the death of Jesus on a Roman cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem, the mercy seat was torn from the sacred seclusion of the most holy place and thrust out into the public space. God presented Jesus publicly as the new mercy seat the meeting place of himself and humanity, the place where he took care of the problem of our human condition through the atoning sacrifice of his son. Jesus' blood, it satisfied God's wrath so that he, the one who is holy and righteous, could forgive sinners like us without compromising his character. God appeased his wrath through his own sacrifice and extended mercy to all, and all means all. This was not done in a corner. Jesus was placed before the eyes of a watching humanity, hostile, contemptuous, and indifferent crowds. But when we who look upon Jesus as our mercy seat, as our atoning sacrifice, we find ourselves to no longer be the object of God's wrath, but the object of his mercy. We find our sins forgiven. We find ourselves set free. We find ourselves ushered into God's presence. As the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, a new and living way has been opened into God's presence through Jesus' death on the cross. What about those who lived before the death of Jesus? Well, in verse 26, Paul writes that God in his divine forbearance, read, his patience temporarily deferred payment for former sins. Even though he, a holy and righteous God, could have judged and punished human beings immediately for their sin, he chose to look forward to the cross of his son, Jesus, where the full payment for human sin would be made. Jesus would die in the place of all sinners, once for all, Jew and Gentile, before his life and after his life on earth. How do we then receive his grace? Well, verses 27 to 31 focus on the human response. Paul again enters into conversation with an imaginary opponent. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. One of the most common and perhaps basic of all sins is illegitimate pride, what Paul calls boasting. Boasting is the language of fallen, self-centered humanity, of human beings outside the garden of God, of those who believe they can be like God without God. Paul states emphatically, there is no room for boasting before God. 
Our works, our works, righteousness saves no one. No one can brag about their contribution to salvation. No one will ever merit salvation. The boasting of human effort only divides. It separates the more spiritual from the less, the spiritual gurus from the common people. It only leads to spiritual pride in our own good works. It is a pitiful pride that makes us look like we measure up through our own righteous devotion. It makes us loom too large, and it makes God too small. It suffocates our worship and ultimately relegates us to life separated from God's presence. There is only one way to receive right standing before God, to be ushered into his presence through faith in Jesus alone. There's no other way to be justified. As soon as we say there are other ways to be justified before God, the statement that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe is rendered meaningless. If there is another way to be reconciled with God, Jesus' atoning sacrifice on our behalf was unnecessary and senseless. For us to say there are other ways to God is to desecrate what God has done in Jesus. Our only response to the cross of Jesus can be faith. Faith is the most common word in verses 21 to 31. And even that faith-filled response to God's grace is something he enables us to do. Returning to the story of Agnes, she'd been running for her life for weeks, fleeing the horrors of the prison camps in Siberia. She was homeless, stateless, without friends and family. Without a citizenship pass, she could not find work. No work meant no food. Her condition was hopeless. One dark night, as she contemplated her fate, she decided that she would lay down on the forest floor, in the snow, say her last prayers, and allow the cold to slowly take her life. Surely death would come easily. As she prayed silently to God, soft lights and a pleasant warmth surrounded her, and a voice whispered, you are my child, get up. Shake the snow off your clothes and walk to the place I will show you. Dazed, Agnes stumbled toward the nearest train station. Her eyes fell on a small yellow building. A light still shone. She knocked on the door. The door opened slightly. Kind eyes regarded her. Do you have a pass? The old man asked. No, Agnes' head dropped. Surely you know what could happen to me, he replied. Then to her surprise, he opened the door wide. God had sent her to one of his own. If we have gotten up and put our faith in Jesus, it is because we have heard God's whisper to get up. Faith is personal. I remember sitting in a nightclub at 3 a.m. in the morning, slowly sobering up. I was so far from God's presence, and then I heard his call. A call to turn from meaningless wandering to something so much more. That was God's grace to me. I deserved condemnation, nothing else. God whispers to us by his grace. Faith simply receives what God has given, but adds absolutely nothing to the gift. The value of our faith is never found in us, but in the one who calls us. All the value is in the object of our faith, Jesus, the one crucified. Faith in Jesus turns the power of the gospel on, and this is true for all. We trust in Jesus, not ourselves. We fix our eyes on what God has done publicly in history through the death and resurrection of Jesus to not only remove all wrath 
but to extend mercy to us, to buy us back, to forgive our sins, to set us free from the power of sin, to remove the barrier between us and God, to grant us right standing in his presence, to usher us into a new and living relationship with him. So will we listen to God's gracious voice and allow the power of the gospel to be turned on? If you're a follower of Jesus, what is Jesus saying to you about his gospel that you need to apply to your life today? If you're not a follower of Jesus, what is God saying to you? Is Jesus asking you to surrender your life to him so that you might receive all that he has done for you? If that's your desire, I want to pray a prayer. And I ask you to pray with me. And then I'm going to pray a prayer for followers of Jesus. Father, I thank you for reaching out to me in love long before I ever thought of you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, to die in my place, to take my sin upon himself. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price I could never pay. And so today, Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior. I surrender my life to you. I turn from a life independent of you. I turn from going my own way, and I choose to follow you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to live in me. I pray that you would teach me to follow your way. I thank you for the gift of forgiveness. I thank you for the gift of eternal life. I thank you for the gift of salvation. I don't deserve it, but I receive it by your grace, by putting my trust in you. Thank you, Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, then I would really encourage you to talk to a friend or a family member that follows Jesus. Or you can connect with us. We would love to encourage you in your journey. You can, commit, you can uh, click that I commit myself to Jesus button on the screen or email us. We would love to encourage you on your way. And now a prayer, prayer for all of us who follow Jesus. Father, again, we just thank you for the gift of being your children. It's only by your grace. And sometimes, Lord, we forget that. I pray that each one of us would come to a deeper understanding of what the gospel truly means for each one of us, that we would have an understanding of what it means to be justified, what it means to have right standing with you. And it's not just about receiving forgiveness of sin, but actually being ushered into your presence of entering into a new relationship with you, Jesus, enjoying uh, you, Father, spending time with you, and receiving instruction from you on how to live, being full of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you've redeemed us from all enslavement to sin. And so, Father, when we fall back in or think that we will never, ever be able to stand up and follow you, forgive us for not placing our faith in you. Forgive us for forgetting that we've actually been redeemed, that we are no longer under the power of sin. And sometimes, Lord, we don't understand what it means to actually have you as the one who is between us and the Father, the one who has bought our redemption, who has opened the new and living way into your presence. We forget that it's only 
by your grace, by your merciful action, that we've been saved and that we have become your children. That we have done nothing to deserve what we have received from you. It's all a gift. And so may we live with gratitude and with thanksgiving. And may we share with others all that we have received from you. May we do this joyfully, courageously, humbly, trusting you to act as we live out the gospel, as we share the gospel with those around us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.